this time on Sonic Earth Expeditions. Wolves. Hello fellow listeners and welcome. I'm your host, Mary Beth Toole. Only one hour from the largest city in the United States, wolf howls drift across the sky. A rare sound in the lower 48 states where wolves were nearly eradicated. It is through the efforts of conservationists and wolf reintroduction programs to bring the species back from the brink of extinction that the song of the wolf is being restored and preserved. In this episode, I'll be talking with Maggie Howell, yes, you heard that right, Maggie Howell, about wolves. She's a biologist and the executive director of the Wolf Conservation Center, a nonprofit in South Salem, New York, founded by classical pianist Alain Grimaud. She had an encounter with actually a wolf hybrid early, um, you know, she's very young, and, um, and something about this encounter she just got kind of bitten by the wolf bug and probably to the dismay of her all the people that worked around her for her career she took some time off and you know she picked a place in new york that had some land um it started with just a single wolf and she dreamed that we would be doing conservation doing education hopefully that wolves would one day be in the northeast and we could be a gateway to help people understand them. And it's really amazing because it didn't take long. She's, she's a very persuasive woman and just incredibly intelligent. And she got people on board. And we were, I think our nonprofit, like in, became incorporated actually in 1999. So it was just last year that we celebrated our 20th anniversary. Wow. It's an amazing story. And she is a, is a terrific pianist. I mean, I've had the the privilege of seeing her perform twice at at an amazing concert. But why was a center for wolves needed in the first place? That's a great question. It's really just kind of embedded in our culture that wolves are a bad thing. So really was to to diffuse those myths and misconceptions and also have people understand what wolves really are, you know, in terms of their ecological value and the landscape. In terms of their family values, they're very similar to us. Even, you know, their almost their economic value now. I hate to even put a value on 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 wolves, but just in terms of ecotourism. Wow, there's so much to mine there in your answer. But let's <laughs> let's start with the center itself and and what's it all about. I guess I'll start with just really our kind of three pronged mission, and really we're there to educate people. I want to teach people about wolves. We teach adults, children. Um, we have scientific webinars, and then we also, you know, have mommy and me. And we do on-site, uh, and now a lot of virtual programming just because of the pandemic. And we also do recovery work. So we participate in the federal recovery program uh, for two critically endangered wolf species. The first is the sub a subspecies of the gray wolf. It's the Mexican gray wolf. 
and the other one is the red wolf, uh, a distinct species of wolf, a different one. And as a participant, we're, you know, we, we house the animals, we care for them, we make recommendations for release. Uh, to date, we've released five of our wolves to the wild, which is really just the best feeling. We uh, carefully manage captive breeding. So, of course, we raise awareness. And the last bit is advocacy. So we're going to be mobilizing our supporters to use their voice to speak up for wolves or maybe use their pen. Wolves can't really speak for themselves when it comes to policy. And all three kind of prongs really just intertwine nicely and support one another. In terms of the wolves, really the, the front line in terms of the educators at the Wolf Center are also the ones who are recovering. We have three wolves that are special. We call them our education wolves or our ambassador wolves. And these wolves are not a part of a recovery program and they will call the Wolf Center home forever. So they're not going to be released, nor will they be transferred anywhere. They're really just our family. With our ambassador wolves, we keep the pack really limited. So it's, it's really uh, maxed out at four. Right now we have three. And that's because, um, well, first of all, these wolves are responsible for, for really inspiring our guests. So when people do come and visit us, uh, these are the wolves they're guaranteed to see. Right now, their names are Zephyr and Alewa and Nakai, and they are all um, siblings. However, Nakai's from a different litter, so he's younger than his two older siblings. And they're really so good at what they do because they really help, you know, forge a connection between our visitors and wild wolves because most people aren't going to see wild wolves. You know, naturally, wolves are very shy. They're very elusive. The best place to probably see wolves would be Yellowstone National Park, where you might spy one through a scope, you know, across the valley. And we're also kind of cheating because a lot of them have radio collars and there's biologists there and you have wolf watchers there 24-7 all year round to kind of point you in the right direction of where to go um, with the best likelihood of, a, of an encounter or a spotting. So it's really a special treat to be able to see wolves in person. And that's exactly what, what Zephyr, Alewa, and Nakai, what they offer people. And not only is it seeing them, but they can howl with them, watch their behavior. I mean, every animal has, you know, their own unique personality. We're just not privy to really be aware of the personalities in the wild. Uh, but boy, do Zephyr, Alewa, and Nakai, they... They, they demonstrate their personalities loud and strong, and it's, it's hilarious because sometimes they're just super goofy, which gives us license to be goofy, too. Are they a cohesive pack, would you say? I mean, I know it's not a natural scenario, but would you yeah. call them a pack? Yeah, I think they are a cohesive pack because normally what a, what a pack is, it's just a wolf family. Naturally, it's going to be a breeding pair, which is going to be mom and dad. The other members of the pack are going to be their offspring. Sometimes it's going to be multi-generational. So you'll have offspring from two years ago and then pups of the year. You might have a wolf that's unrelated or an aunt or uncle. There's no, you know, real framework that's strict. It's very dynamic. But generally, it's going to be a family similar to human families. And just like with people, when wolves reach a certain age, they're probably going to want to leave the family um, and start their own. And some just kick around with mom and dad forever, just the way some people do that too. <laughs> so, um, so it's, you know, it's a lot of similarities, but it's really in that family group that they, everything they do is about 
just building those family bonds so they can survive. So with Zephyr, Alewa, and Nakai, they are family, but there's no breeding going on. So in the wild, those breeders, they're the bosses. So in the past, they were called the alpha male or the alpha female. There's actually been a lot of kind of stepping back away from that because of the way I think we use it in our culture is more of kind of an attitude and and not just, oh, I had pups. <laughs> so basically, if you're a mom, you're an alpha female. And if you're a dad, the same thing. But because we don't have that, we also don't have that leadership that's kind of cooked in. So we have more self-appointed uh, leaders within the trio of ambassadors. But I would say that Zephyr and Alewa probably shared that the most. It's just the older pups. And I think Nakai would love to be the leader. And I think he's tried every <laughs> once in a while. He just kind of just bugs them like any little brother would. But they, they, all, they all really, they're tight. They're, they're, they're a really good unit, which is good. There are currently 40 wolves at the Wolf Conservation Center. In addition to the three ambassador wolves, there are 21 Mexican gray wolves and 16 red wolves. The other wolves you have there, the Mexican gray wolves and the red wolves, tell me a little bit about each of them. Most of these wolves, for both the red wolves and the Mexican wolves, they reside off exhibit. So when people come to visit us, they're not you know, going to have the same opportunities to see them the way they see Nakai and Alewa and Zephyr. And really what these wolves, why we have them is that we're really just kind of donating our time and our space and food and veterinary, you know, uh, care to really just support these wolves because they're owned actually by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or by you and me because as federal government. <laughs> um, they're really owned by all citizens. So we have these wolves, but it's we have a different relationship with them, first of all, because we know we're not going to have them, or we might have some of them forever, but we're not going to necessarily have all of them forever. But the biggest reason why we have a different relationship is we want to keep them wild. So the way we approach um, the ambassadors is totally different, because with those guys, we raise them and the whole point of our relationship is to make them feel comfortable with people, to make them feel, you know, like everything is safe, to really almost numb their natural instincts, which would be to, to fear us. With the Mexican gray wolves and the red wolves, it's the entire opposite. We don't want to numb their natural behavior. Uh, we want to safeguard it. So, and that's because many of them will have opportunities um, to be wild. And if they don't, then they'll have opportunities, they might have opportunities to breed and raise wolves that have that opportunity. And we want to make sure they're equipped with the proper behaviors and mindset. When people come and visit us, they do have an opportunity to see two red wolves. Their names are Tyke and Lava. They also have alphanumeric names, which would begin with an M as a male or F as a female. We tend not to use those too often unless we're looking at stud book stuff because we really want people, we want people to care about these animals. And then people also have an opportunity to see two Mexican gray wolves, Diego and his companion, uh, Valentia. All the other wolves reside off exhibit. So the only chance that you can see them is via webcam. 
And that is one way we're going to be able to, to really preserve their, their natural behavior, not so they don't become accustomed to seeing people. We don't want them to become habituated to people. For the wolves that are on exhibit, those are wolves that are less likely to have some of those opportunities. And ideally, we'd like them all off exhibit, but we also want it's a balance of letting people have an idea of what these other animals are. That being said, it's not often so easy to see them, even though they're on exhibit. And that's because they can hide lots of places. <laughs> so uh, their behavior is totally different than, than our educator wolves. Mm. So all of these wolves, the reason we have them is because they're just so imperiled. Both of these wolf species at one time were extinct in the wild. As we started thinking the last Mexican gray wolves, you know, those, that last population was dwindling. That's when the federal government, along with agencies in Mexico, actually collaborated to gather what they thought were the last remaining Mexican gray wolves in the wild. And it was actually south of the border in Mexico. We unfortunately had already killed uh, what they believed were all the Mexican wolves that lived in New Mexico and Arizona. Humans had. Possibly even, yeah, Western Texas. And it was really, uh, a lot of it was the federal government, probably without understanding or having an understanding of just the ecological importance that predators have. They sought to rid the landscape of most predators, so bears, coyotes, mountain lions, and wolves via trapping, you know, poisoning. It was probably 1970s and 80s where they started thinking that these guys were really at risk of, of disappearing forever. So they gathered the last remaining wolves. They actually captured five, and that was it. Five Mexican wolves. Yeah, one of those Mexican gray wolves happened to be pregnant, so that helped a little, <laughs> so it was seven. Wow. But really, all Mexican gray wolves on the planet today descended from those five animals. And so as you can imagine, just genetic health is a concern, and it's definitely probably the thing that's governing most management decisions when it comes to breeding pairs and also recommendations for release, who gets released to the wild. For the Mexican gray wolf, the thing that makes it a little different than other gray wolves is they are genetically the most distinct of all gray wolves here in North America. So while we do have wolves, even though we also killed a lot of those wolves and, and they disappeared as well here in our country, but in the Rocky Mountains and in Canada, we have Arctic wolves in the high Arctic. It's really the Mexican gray wolf that is really just so genetically special and also the southernmost and also the smallest. 85 pounds would be a pretty big Mexican gray wolf. So I would say between 50 and 85 is about the average size of these lobos. For the red wolf, it's very similar. However, um, when those numbers were dwindling, it was here on the East Coast, and their numbers is really mostly habitat loss as well, because of course there were a lot of people here. And the last red wolves that they were able to capture, again, they being the US um, Fish and Wildlife, was really down on the Gulf Coast. And that's where they caught a lot of canids. And out of that pool, they determined that 14 were red wolves. So again, really similar. And when they scooped up those five wolves or they scooped up the 14, what they did is they placed them in captivity. And those became the founding populations, uh, very carefully managed. Again, genetics is really steering all these decisions. And today we have, you know, a couple hundred of each of these wolves, mm -hmm. wolf species wow. among a network of facilities all over the country, mostly zoos, 
few organizations that are uh, more similar to us, and for the Mexican Grey Wolf also in Mexico. So it's, it's nice it's still this collaborative recovery effort. At the Wolf Conservation Center, to keep humans away from the off-exhibit wolves while still keeping track of them, they use cameras to monitor the enclosures and dens. But there's another benefit, social media. We have beautiful animals and pictures of them and videos of them. And, and it was just such a like, whoa, wow, we can actually talk to people about wolves and start to, you know, kind of inject a little bit of wolf into people's everyday life via sharing all this stuff. Sometimes it just takes one weird thing to go viral or whatever. And for YouTube, I remember it was uh, 2014. Our ambassador wolf, Nakai, was just a puppy. He was about two months old. <clears throat> he was actually indoors at the time. And it was my turn just to kind of puppy sit. And I was just on my computer working away. I noticed he had the hiccups. And I was like, oh my goodness, oh. that is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I just put my phone down and I have this video of him hiccuping. And we put that on YouTube. It felt like he broke the internet. <laughs> <laughs> All this attention about wolf pup hiccups. And it kind of just put wind in our sails for YouTube for... Some other platforms, it was just a, a 10 second video of a red wolf just looking at the camera. And it's just stunning. <laughs> and, uh, or he's stunning. And it just, yeah, it just kind of blew up. It's really neat. Just, we're just there to support them, you know, to kind of help them get onto those platforms. And really, they're just speaking for themselves. There's no, there's no narration, there's no human character in any of our stuff. It's really just the wolves doing them, and, and people love it. So, so yeah, we've, we've got really good PR team, our wolves. <laughs> They're really good. Who are the breakout stars on YouTube? Aleowa is definitely a breakout star because oh, she's just such a goof. She, she's a very lazy howler. What's a lazy howler? She'll just be laying down, all of a sudden, uh, an explosion of howls. Something happens at the wolf's there, and everyone just starts howling. And you see her, and she's like, oh, no, I have to howl. Like, she just can't help it, but she's like, I'm not going to get up, though. And she just goes like, oh, I mean, she just, like, fights it, and then she's laying down. And so it's popular because it's hilarious, you know, just seeing this lazy wolf howling but also there's just so many ways you could be like oh that's so me every monday morning or oh that's how i feel after i eat too much but it's her well that brings us to a really good subject to talk about howling why do wolves howl wolves howl it really is just one form of communication for them it's just one sound that they make they they make up they speak in other ways vocally and sometimes not using their voice at all but when it comes to howling well one thing it's it's long distance communication so wolves you know they have excellent hearing wolves can actually hear one another howl over really long distances 
if it's kind of open terrain, maybe even 10 miles away. Wow. It's like long distance phone call, I guess, basically for wolves. But what's really going to inspire them to howl will be different occasions. You know, sometimes they're going to be howling to maybe call to a family member that's far away. Like, come on home, time to come home, get a dinner. Sometimes it's a rallying call. They're just kind of excited as a family. And they'll all just kind of start howling with one another. Sometimes it's a defensive mechanism. When they howl, not only do they each have their own unique voice, the same way we all sound different, they all have their own their own voices. But when they're howling together, they're gonna have those voices, but also some of the harmonies. So it makes the family sound larger. to warn one another of danger. They have a, a special kind of howl and it, it sounds like an alarm call. It's barking uh, followed with like a kind of like abrupt howl, you know, but that's really the only barking they really do is, is associated with that kind of alarm bark howl. Sometimes they do it just to sing. The same way if you go to a concert, often everyone in the stands is just singing along or if you're around the campfire, just kind of singing together. Again, it's that, it's that bringing people together, that bond, that kind of, that common kind of feeling, I guess. And that's how it is for wolves too. It's, it's, it's called social glue, which I love that expression, but really just so they can just reaffirm those bonds. And it's great. It's great to see the way they move when they're howling. Often it's gonna involve even just like touching each other's faces. It's really just a beautiful sound. It's a beautiful thing to see and you can really feel it. You can, you can feel the vibrations, not probably in the wild because they're far away, but if a Leoa is howling right in front of you, you, you can feel it in your body. It's, it's, it's just really amazing. A call to the wild. Exactly. artwork you know you see that classic picture of a wolf silhouette in front of the full moon <laughs> do wolves actually howl more during the full moon it's, it's probably the most common question because we see those t-shirts and stuff all the time right but you know there's no scientific data that suggests that wolves are howling more when there's a full moon but you know, there's some reasons why one might think they could. And that is, you know, wolves are, are most active at dusk and dawn, kind of that low light, twilight kind of dusky time of day. And that's kind of the same sort of aura and, and light situation that you have during a full moon. And so perhaps wolves are more active. They can see a bit better than most nights. And perhaps they're prey, uh, who are also uh, crepuscular. If you live in an area where there's deer, normally you're going to see them on the side of the road or what have you really early in the morning or, or again as the sun's going down and maybe that extra bit of light is increasing activity among all those animals. Mm -hmm. Do you recognize the different howls of any of the wolves there at the center? Oh yeah, definitely. I can't say I recognize each of the Mexican wolves or red wolves. Some of them I can, but when it comes to Alewa, Zephyr, and Nakai, they all have very different voices and Zephyr is like the soprano 
He even has a special howl when he's getting annoyed with you. Um, like, if you're like, oh, howl with me, he goes, oh. <laughs> he kind of ends it with that, like, it's a period right after he's done with it. Otherwise, when he's not annoyed, he's very kind of just high-pitched. He's the oldest male in the in the group, and he's darker than his brother and sister, and then he's like, oh, and he has this, this really high voice. Aleowa has this deeper voice. She responds to deeper howls. And Nakai is just, he, he like yodels from time to time when he's howling. He's more similar to, to his sister than Zephyr. Diego's howl I can pick out and he's very soulful. And the red wolves are a totally different ball game. Yeah, when I was there, they kind of had that barky thing happening. They have yips and barks and almost like, Rah! like it's almost like even their mouths like kind of vibrate that way. It's almost like they're the electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. But they're just like come in and just like start screeching and it's a really fun howl. <laughs> it's really oh, neat. I love that electric guitar. Do, do they naturally know how to howl or do they have to learn from their parents? How does that work? Yeah, so they're hardwired to know how to howl. I'm sure there's probably some education that goes along with it, just along with nature and nurture with so much. We we actually have footage um, via some of our den cams. So our webcams are inside some of the dens. If the if the mother chooses to actually stash her pups in that den, that's where we get treat, treated to like, oh, just the best the best footage and experiences, you know, and, and so do a global audience. So we see the first steps, you know, the first how. We also see every single thing we should not see. Like, you know, oh, the wolf found a loose board and climbed behind it. And you're just biting your nails and ripping out your hair all night long. And you realize like this stuff probably happens all the time. We're just not privy. We just don't see it. But so we see everything, which is a, a, an emotional roller coaster is what it is. But we see those first howls and and again it's it's and you see this with the adults too sometimes where they just can't stop themselves. It's just like, oh gosh, here I go, oh! and they just kind of go into a howl. But when their little pups are just these squeals. It was two years ago, two years ago, two years ago, we actually had 20 um, pups uh, total at the wow. Wolf Conservation Center in four different litters. That is a lot of pups. Yeah. Actually, I think it was even more than that. It was nine, ten. It was more than that. It was 22 pups. 22 pups. Wow. During that season when they were all still very young, so I want to say like June, all wolves are born in April or May, ultimately. How long is their gestation period? It's 63 days, so same as a dog. So that's one of the things that dogs have kind of retained from their ancestors. You hear the regular howling that, you know, if you're there all the time, you, you hear. And then these squeals from, them, you know, 20-some-odd something squeals among it. It was just, ugh, it was amazing. And, and summers are really, generally, the last summer was a bust for everybody. But summer is normally a time when we have a lot of sleepovers. We do a sleeping with wolves event where people camp out. And they got to hear so much of this. And it was just... I'm sure they, they remember it. It's it's hard to forget. Oh, that's adorable. Is howling, is it a language? Yeah, actually. I don't remember how many years ago, but 
I would say within the past four years, the largest kind of survey was done among lots of different kinds of canids. And they found that there was basically 21 different dialects that they could identify. And sometimes they varied, they varied between the species, but they also varied between the subspecies, which I thought was really interesting. And I mean, I don't, I think we're just guessing a lot of the time what there's what they're actually saying. Oh gosh, I wish we I wish we had like a translator. That would just be amazing if we could actually know, uh, or maybe not. <laughs> but you know, this, at the wolf center, it's weird because of course we're trying to keep most of the wolves there as wild as possible. But it's not in the wild, and they're very you know the enclosures are kind of across the way from one another, so. I can only imagine what's happened, what sort of chatter and mm. probably taunting and maybe, maybe even like planning for all <laughs> I know. We used to have this one corner. And so I used to call this little corner of the, the Wolf Center because it's kind of a weird spot where there's brought everyone together in those three enclosures. I used to call it the UN because I was always wondering because you had your Arctic and then you had your Mexican gray wolf in the southwest and then the southeast. Oh, and I was like, what are they hatching? I hope they're coming up with some oh, good that's stuff. Funny. But yeah, I, I do wonder really what, how, what do they under, what are they saying to one another? The conservation center is in the middle of this suburban kind of area. Are there any sounds that just happen that are human made that trigger the wolves? You know, like sirens or what have you. Yeah, sirens do. And what's interesting is suddenly, again, an explosion of howls. And they're like, gosh, I wonder what's that, you know, what, why they all just start howling at the exact same time? And then maybe 30 seconds, seconds later, you hear the, the sirens. And sights too. I mean, I see, Ale- not Alewa, um, Nakai looking at planes all the time. And I was like, I wonder what he's thinking. And of course, wild wolves do that too. You know, they're planes everywhere. That's not just something in captivity. But it's just, you know, he just stops and goes, "Mm," you see him go looking at the whole bird. How closely can the Wolf Conservation Center and places like it mimic the actual wilderness? Unfortunately, we can't do anything about planes and all of that. And we we do seem to have a lot of planes a lot of small planes constantly. But what we do is, to the best of our ability, is we just try to create kind of these, like an oasis. The enclosures where all the wolves are are very heavily wooded. You know, there's places to hide and dig. If there's a tree that falls, it's going to stay there unless it poses some sort of risk with the fence or or what have you. So that underneath those roots, they can go uh, create a den or just a bed or what have you. So just to create as natural a landscape, I guess, as we possibly can. Even the way we view them, it's really up to the wolves. I mean, the ambassadors like people, they like attention. And snacks. <laughs> yeah, and then snacks. So they tend to kind of come up to the an area where people would view them from. But it's not like we have these areas where we look down on the wolves, like where there's a moat and, you know, kind of all this stuff. It's really just on their terms. We really want to kind of make sure they have, they have those, those security blankets. So if they're feeling secure in any way, they can hide, do whatever they want to do, never make an appearance. That's fine. In terms of just making them feel wild and promote uh, keeping them wild, diet is something that's really important. 
Our ambassador wolves have a very flexible menu because they don't have to really know what's appropriate to eat. They get just really all sorts of meat. For the other wolves, they primarily get uh, roadkill deer and it'll be whole carcass. We don't feed them live deer just because it'll be essentially a canned hunt. <laughs> um, there's no way for a deer to get out. But there's a lot of poor deer that get hit by cars. And uh, it's a real community effort where we have uh, police officers, highway department, um, neighbors, <laughs> like tell us when there's a, a deer or even bring them to us, which is, which is amazing. And by giving them that food, it's going to be healthier for them. In fact, there's a study very recently, um, sadly for, for red wolves, captive red wolves actually, they compared the gut biome between wolves that were fed natural food, so that was actually one of our wolves, Tyke, was in the study as the natural eater versus kibble versus like meat log type of situations or hybrid and found that in order to have a healthy kind of gut biome, it's really to mimic a diet that's as wild as possible. And it's just another way where you're like, oh gosh, we really have to make sure, even if they're never going to the wild, we want them to be healthy inside and out the way their bodies were designed. We want them to have good gut health. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> good gut health. I love that. But then also for the wolves that are do become wild, we want them to know what's appropriate to eat. That's one of the ways that wolves can get into trouble in the wild is by preying on, on cattle or sheep or what have you. So we want to discourage that as much as possible, even though it's really a low occurrence if you're looking at all the numbers. And also we want them to have natural behavior of how to behave with one another when they're eating. Mm -hmm. So by giving them a whole dead deer, that family group is going to be displaying natural behaviors of I get to eat first or no, you oh, know, wow. just really the hierarchy and kind of, again, reaffirming kind of their place within the family and also their bonds again. So it's, it's, uh, it really is a great, not for the deer, but it's a great for our community, but it's also really the best thing for the wolves. And, mm. and even with us, when I talk about off exhibit, like even our staff, like I don't go up there. That's why we use webcams. If you have wolves in your charge that you have to make sure they're healthy and, and not injured and behaving normally, we want to make sure that we can get our eyes on them in some way. And that's why we initiated our webcams. And then when we opened it up to the public, we just didn't even realize what an engagement tool mm. was right under our nose. So um, and it's been such a great way for for people to really learn about kind of the lesser known wolf species like the red wolf or Mexican gray wolf, but also to see firsthand some of those behaviors, again, with those multi-generational packs with, you know, the, the siblings that are different ages and who, what, who does what and what their job is and just kind of behaviors that might be unique to a certain wolf or family. Um, it's just been the best. How do you get the wolves that are going to be released into the wild to know how to hunt? We don't feed any live prey at the wolf center, but really anything that can get into an enclosure is fair game. So rabbits and chipmunks and squirrels and ravens, vultures, crows, songbirds, they sometimes aren't so lucky. Mm. We had one family of red wolves that came from a facility in um, North Carolina they had pups and they kind of just outgrew where they were living. So they came to us and they're still living at the Wolf Center. The parents' names are Sam and Veronica. <laughs> they got probably two or three black vultures a week. Wow. 
And yeah, and we have a very robust um, vulture population, probably because we have a lot of dead deer on the wolf center. And I, I think vultures are fascinating. Another misunderstood critter. I love them. It was like it was like a party, because where they were, I just don't think they had access um, to that sort of wild life, and they sure took advantage of it as soon as they came. And every day they, I mean, the yearlings, they're just kids, uh, but they were playing tug of war and this huge wingspan is and you're just like, oh my gosh, the poor thing. They would roll on it, you know, and the whole, and then eat. They just kind of went bananas when they first got there, probably just because it was so exciting. Uh, and they didn't have visitors, you know, it was the first time suddenly there's no people around. Um, but it was probably the, the wildest they've ever been. Perhaps the most important success stories of the center are when they can release their wolves into the wild. We actually got a call from U.S. Fish and Wildlife just a couple, like, a couple of weeks after I started working at the Wolf Center. And they said, yeah, we, we selected, and her name was F-838, to be released into Arizona. Uh, you know, I was just like, this place is the best place ever. I mean, I couldn't believe it because I've worked with animals in captivity and to know that this animal that, you know, we were going to have to catch and put on a plane and send her off was going to be a wild wolf was just mind blowing to me. And as an educator, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't wait to talk about this constantly. <laughs> like, you know, challenge the kids to, like, imagine what it would feel like for the first time in her life not to see fences or people or the whole adventure. What they did is they, they brought her to a pre-release facility that was that's managed by U.S. Fish and Wildlife in New Mexico. And they introduced her to a boy wolf there. And then they had pups. And then um, when those pups were just 12 weeks old, early in July of 2006, they basically did a soft release where they had put them in kennels. Uh, they had a soft mesh pen out in the wild. I think it was in the Apache Forest. And basically opened the kennels and just left. And they released themselves like instantly. And then during that kind of initial period, they will do some supplemental feeding uh, where U.S. Fish and Wildlife will put like, you know, elk parts or something around just to, especially if they have pups, just to kind of make sure they they do get something to eat before they figure it out. I think it was about two or two, two and a half weeks after they were released, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, gave us a call to let us know they caught their first elk. An elk. And... I was so proud. <laughs> I wow. felt terrible for the elk, but I was so proud that our New Yorker, <sighs> um, who had never hunted before, you know, uh, an ungulate, a, a big hooved, and that her family group, that they not only saw an elk, how cool, but they were able to pursue the elk and catch it and actually got to eat the elk. Because that requires everything, the teamwork, the knowing that's prey, it requires so much intelligence. It does. And it just felt so, like, we realized that she's a wild wolf. Like, that's, that's who she is now. So it really was rewarding. Unfortunately, even though this is more about successes, F-838 was um, poached shortly after. One of her pups died. She had two pups. One of her pups died pretty early on, too. They believe it was a bear. So natural. And unfortunately, after she was killed illegally, the father and the young daughter stayed together for a little while. 
and then they kind of drifted apart and he he joined uh, an existing pack called the Blue Stem Pack and became the breeding male. Oh, so wow. he 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 managed he found a new life and he actually lived for 6 years in the wild after his release. Sadly the uh, young daughter was kind of on her own for a while and she ended up passing away soon after just she probably just couldn't eat. So it just shows you the kind of the trickle down effect of breaking up this family. You know, it, it did more than just hurt the mom. It really did disrupt the whole pack. And you know, it's probably the reason why that the, her little girl didn't have, you know, a chance to succeed. We have released more wolves since then. And it's always scary because, you know, gosh, it's really the, the whole purpose. That's what we want to do. We want to have these animals. We want to breed them to genetic health. And then we want to get them out there so they can be wolves. And, and just knowing that there's so many challenges out there that are unnatural on top of the bears and disease and everything else that comes with being a wild animal. It's hard to take sometimes, but you got to do it. You had mentioned cross-fostering before. Have you released any wolves that way? Yes. The last wolf we released uh, was last year. It was a Mexican gray wolf. And that is really the primary tool in the toolbox that U.S. Fish and Wildlife right now is using for Mexican gray wolf introduction. And what is it, first of all? It's a coordinated effort when pups that are born in captivity, if it's around the same time that pups are born in the wild, like within days, then some of those pups in captivity can actually be removed from their family uh, in captivity and inserted into the wild den, a wild family you know, wherever they're going. So, uh, so it's, it's really great in that you don't have to worry about safeguarding that natural behavior because they don't even have it yet. You know, that they're, they're just teeny. They're between usually like seven and 10 days old. So their eyes, if they're open at all, it's barely. So they're definitely still nursing. You know, they're just really this, these little guinea pigs in terms of size. (laughs) That's how big they are. And with us, it was uh, a Mexican gray wolf who's definitely very popular. Her name is Trumpet, and she was named that for her squeals as a pup when she was a pup of her own. It was her second litter. She had four pups, or five pups, sorry. But our curator was able to go down with other staff, and we kind of got this like weird pole thing with a camera at the end so we could see what, what sort of nest she had what goods she had in there and we counted five pups uh reported back to u.s fish and wildlife and they said okay it looks like that new mexico is only going to allow one more pup to be released they already did 11 others so they had a 12 pup limit like and it's a long it's a long haul for you because you're in new york you're further away than anyone else but we think we should go for it they're like okay our curator went in and um it was in middle of the night along with one of our veterinarians. Uh, we have a great team of vet. They all volunteer their, volunteer their services. I mean, they're amazing. And our great veterinarian, Dr. Moss. And in the middle of the night, they went in and they looked at all the pups. They picked the beefiest, healthiest looking one, which happened to be a female. They then put her in a, like a dog soft carrier thing with some hot water bottles, some towels, what have you. And she, she somehow found someone to donate their private jet, which is pretty amazing. They flew across the country in style in the middle of the night, just making sure she's healthy. Our curator is also a, a vet tech, so she's pretty well-equipped to taking care of 
uh, when it comes to bottle feeding or what have you, and just making sure the animal's healthy. And plus, we had our veterinarian. And when they arrived, they were met by U.S. Fish and Wildlife and also Arizona Fish and Game. They're like, okay, no time to sleep. Time to go hike in the wilderness for a few hours. And I'm going to take you out to where we think, you know, is the best family group um, because they're behaving like there's been pups born in this area. It was like really rainy because the storms, when they got to the den site, the mother would not come out of the den. And normally wolves, wolves are um, different from like mama bears. Uh, You know, they're, they're so scared of people that they will actually scatter, leave the pups behind. You know, they'll come back for them. They're not going to go too far away, but um, they're so scared of people, that's what they'll do. And and U.S. Fish and Wildlife uses that to their advantage, whether they'll go in, they'll examine actually the pups that are already there, maybe even microchip them um, so they could, you know, if they see them in the future, they'll know, oh, this is the pup from that litter. And they rub kind of whatever dirt or urine or whatever's in the den. They put that all over the new pup just so it kind of blends in with the rest. And it's 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 worked really well. And they did, could not get her out. So like, oh, gosh, well, if we have one other chance, they knew of another pack. And they said, let's go on another hike, you know, for a couple of miles. Meanwhile, no one slept. <laughs> so this whole of our poor curator and vet. This is dedication. Oh, my gosh. But the, still the stormy now. They get to the second area where they think there might be pups. And they did confirm there was a mom in the den. And there was a little, like, skylight in the den. It was like this kind of... Um, rocky crop, like outcropping. And through this kind of hole in the rocks, they could see the mom was in there with pups. So that's good. They could confirm that at least, but she wouldn't leave again. And so they were just like, oh gosh, well, we have to make a decision. Either you have to go home now and get that pup back to her mother, or we just have to drop the pup through the little skylight and cross our fingers. And uh, both came with a lot of risk, (laughs) but they decided just to drop, drop the pup. And so that's what they did. They just bloop right through the little um, skylight and they were able to look through and they saw the pup kind of squirm on over to the other pups and attach onto mom and start eating. Oh my God. So we still don't know what happened to Hope. We actually named her Hope because we feel like she gives hope for recovery when we're talking to school children or adults or just sitting at home by ourselves during a pandemic, I can't tell you how fun it is to daydream about hope. Thank you to my guest, Maggie Howell, and to the Wolf Conservation Center for allowing me to come record Wolf Howls and for providing some of the sounds you heard on the podcast. To learn more about wolves, the center has a great website which links to all their social media and their wolf cams. It's at nywolf.org. This podcast is handcrafted. I edit and mix, and I also compose and perform the incidental music. 
You can find more of my music on major streaming platforms. I publish as Cosmic Piano. If you'd like to show your support, I'll also be including music and field recordings from the podcast for purchase on my Bandcamp site. That's at cosmicpiano.bandcamp.com. I'm Mary Beth Toole, and you've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. Until next time, thank you, and remember, better living through listening. Happy trails. <laughs>